So we have two victors sitting at the table. There were some forces on the ground still, but this was a victor's agreement, Lausanne. And I think this is what differs Lausanne from all other post-World War I settlements. Welcome to the Eliamep podcast series. A century ago, on 24 July 1923, the Lausanne Peace Treaty was signed on the banks of Lake Geneva. With this treaty and its accompanying conventions, the Greater War came to an end. About 1.5 million Greeks and Turks were forcefully displaced, and the borders of the Near and Middle East were largely drawn. In this podcast, we will discuss with Ozano Zwarski, Assistant Professor of Transimperial History in the University of Utrecht, about the importance of the treaty. Professor Ozavtsi will be one of the speakers in the conference that Eliamep and the National and Capodistrian University of Athens are organizing about the treaty. Welcome, Professor Ozavtsi, and thank you very much for this opportunity. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to begin by asking you, did the Lausanne moment truly mark the end of the Eastern question? Did it end with the treaty? Well, that depends on how you define the Eastern question. So if we consider it in the sense that the revisionist literature defines it, meaning you have to deal with the perceived and relative weakness of the Ottoman Empire since the late 18th century. And I should emphasize the word relative there because that's in comparison to the emerging great powers, European great powers of the time. So if we define the Eastern question as how to deal with the relative weakness of the Ottoman Empire, then yes, with the Treaty of Lausanne, the Eastern question was put to arrest because the Ottoman Empire was no more since the 1st of November, 1922. But on the other hand, this is the definition of the Eastern question would also back thinking about it from the perspective of the Ottomans, especially Ottoman Turks, if I may put it that way, because for the Ottoman Turks, imperial elites, not, not all of them were ethnic Turks, obviously, the Eastern question also referred to a syndrome a long-lasting quest for security and an insecurity memory, because for nearly more than a century, the empire was in the receiving end of manifold foreign interventions, not only armed ones, but also legal, administrative, economic, and financial. And it left them with a syndrome, with this dire need to ensure warrants the place of their empire, among the great powers of the time. In that specific sense, if we consider the Eastern question also as a syndrome, a long-lasting syndrome, then I would say it did not quite end with Lausanne. It only transformed into a new way of uh, insecurity. And the Treaty of Lausanne, it aimed at um, averting many of the, thwarting many of the perceived threats for the Ottoman imperial elite. But I can't say that it succeeded 100%. So it lived on the Eastern question. Do you think that the absence of um, the Arab world from the treaty played also um, a role? Because major European empires always intervened in the Middle East. Uh, and I have the feeling that they didn't fully take into account the local complexities. Uh, 
and they thought that Middle Eastern actors were barbarian other. Is that so, or is that uh, a, a wrong perception? Well, it was a very orientalist perception to think about the um, peripheries of the periphery, so to speak, like the imperial subjects of the late Ottoman Empire and other empires in the Middle East as the barbarian other or what have you. I mean, the, 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 the distinction between civilized and barbarian, this is nothing new, it's lasted. Like it's been the case throughout human history, but especially since the 18th century, mid-18th century, with the invention of the term civilization uh, as a driving force of policymaking, and especially in the 19th century, with the, with the categorization of the world order as one divided uh, among the civilized, semi-civilized and non-civilized peoples, this became more prevalent. And even the Ottoman imperialists themselves, as Selim Deringil and Usama Maktisi have shown in their work, even they considered the periphery of the empire, the, the um, well, they, they didn't really consider it in ethnic terms until late 19th century, I'd say, but uh, you know, the several warring parties or parties that were involved in violence as barbarians of sorts. But the reason the Arab world, if I may put say so, or to be more specific, the Syrians, Palestinians, Egyptians, Iraqis, of course, that's an invented category. But the reason they were excluded from the Treaty of Lausanne and the Conference of Lausanne had less to do with the fact that they were considered entirely uncivilized and more to do with the fact that the great power interests were more imminent at the time. So if you look at the uh, Treaty of Sev and the San Remo discussions in the run up to Lausanne, yes, of course, we have this mandate system and the underlying discursive practice of the, the mandate system is that we are going to rule in these countries, the French and the British would say, until the local populations reach to a degree of civilization, but that's a discursive practice. So that's less about the actual aims of the great powers, Britain and France, and uh, uh, more about what they were actually looking to obtain. And that was uh, strategic gains. Of course, there was with potential of oil and imperial security, especially Britain looked to establish it's Levantine Empire at the end of World War I. They had very concrete plans of, uh, of uh, extending their empire to the Middle East, even turning Hagia Sophia into a church. Like there was this, like there were these uh, movements in London, even committees established to this uh, end. Of course, that didn't quite succeed with the uh, Greco-Turkish War in Asia Minor. But if you look at the other side of the the border, like in a, of, of Mesopotamia, you see that the Arabs were stripped of their own democratic struggles in Syria. They had established this parliament. They, had, they were looking to establish this liber, partially liberal regime, as Elizabeth Thompson argues in her work, but they were stripped from that and then a military dictatorship was established. And when we come to 1922, November, to, to the beginning of the Lausanne Conference, we see that several Arab delegates were also there, Syrians, Palestinians, Iraqis, Egyptians, looking to obtain different ends from independence to uh, larger territories, whatever you. But uh, they were played out. They 
proved to be a bargaining chip and they were never given formal accusation. Ismet Pasha government did show sympathy, some sympathy to them, but only to use their interest to the larger interests of Turkey, ultimately. Do you believe that now Lausanne is a peace treaty forgotten by the world beyond Greece and Turkey? Do you think that only uh, Greeks and Turks are interested now in uh, the Lausanne peace treaty? Well, this year, not, not so much. But up until very recently, yes, I would say so. And I would argue so mainly because of, mainly by simply looking at the existing literature. Up until this year, there was only one monograph in the English language that was written about the Treaty of Lausanne. There are several studies in Turkey on Lausanne, several studies in Greek, several studies on in population exchange. So in that sense, maybe, yes, Lausanne was not entirely forgotten, but the treaty itself, with all its complexities, with its multi-sectoral form, how its uh, oil dynamics informed minority problems, how population exchange had economic and uh, financial undertones, how prisoners of war were used as a bargaining chip, and uh, the great power interests, the differences between Britain, France, Japan, and uh, Italy, whatever you, United States, but all these came to be considered from a more global angle, and also the socio-economic dynamics, the the bottom-up histories of Lausanne, they came to be considered only in the past one and a half, two years, I would say. Uh, our Lausanne project that I started together with my colleague from uh, Southampton University, uh, Professor Jonathan Colnin, it has created an archive on Lausanne and we've collected several uh, and published several blog posts and podcasts on aspects of Lausanne. Uh, and my colleagues, uh, Julia Sekleiner, uh, Yorgos Tiannikopoulos, and Enno Masson also joined the project recently. But aside from what we do, there has been also these studies uh, recently published by um, uh, Jay Winter. He published a monograph with the Oxford University Press. Hans-Lucas Kieser and uh, Michel Toussaint, they published books on Lausanne with Cambridge University Press. So there is a nascent literature now, an emerging literature. But up until this year, up until the centenary, Lausanne was usually considered as the epilogue of the epilogue. So you had this World War One, the war was fought, the war ended in 1918, according to the mainstream narrative. And then you had the Treaty of Paris, or uh, the, the, the Paris peace settlements in Versailles, uh, Trianon and uh, like Neuilly, whatever you. And then, Lausanne would only serve as the epilogue of this epilogue of peacemaking, just a correction or an undoing of what happened in Serb in 1920. So the interest was very limited. The knowledge on Lausanne was very limited, quite limited to strategic discussions between Britain and Turkey, quite limited to population exchanges. But I believe that that literature is now being extended and broadened. Well, if you compare it with another historic treaty, the Treaty of Versailles, would you say that there are big differences or similarities uh, are? Um, I consider the Treaty of Lausanne um, may have been the last of the post-World War I peace settlements. And if you would compare it with Versailles, what would you say? I think the main difference would be, well, what you say is very correct. Lausanne is the last of the peace settlements at the end of World War I. It is possibly the only one that lasts to this date. Some people argue there is also Brestitos, but uh, I won't go into that. But I think the main difference between Lausanne and all other 
peace settlements at the end of World War I is the fact that Lausanne was a winner's peace, meaning it was signed between the winners of the War of 1914-1918, the Allied powers, and the winner of the War of 1919-1922, Turkey. So we have two victors sitting at the table. There were some forces on the ground still, but this was a victor's agreement, Lausanne. And I think this is what differs Lausanne from all other post-World War I settlements. Well, the issue, of course, was unsolved with um, the Treaty of Lausanne. Do you believe that we could use it in the future so that um, the good problem will be solved or is will it remain like that? You mean the Kurdish problem? Yes. Well, the situation of the Kurds were not actively discussed in Lausanne at all. The Kurds especially Sherif Pasha, wanted to send a delegation. They wanted to be involved. But then again, who were the Kurds? So that was a contested question because there was no single Kurdish voice in 1922. You had like figures like Prince Zayde Arif, which were, if I may put it that way, co-opted by the Kemalist regime by that point, and they had dropped their cause. Uh, they, they they really sided with the Kemalists in Ankara. Previously, you had the Badekhan family and the Abdul Rezak. They had their own political struggles. But as Jean Bajalan has argued in his work, they were uh, suppressed by, by the time the Lausanne conference began. And of course, you had these uh, the, the aspirant buddies that wanted Kurdish independence that were not even invited to Lausanne and that were not heard at the time. But there was no mainstream narrative, I would say, among the Kurds. All Kurds want one thing. Yeah, that, that wasn't the case. It was quite a fragmented moment back then in 1922-23. And especially those co-opted co by the Kemalis and a certain, um, I wouldn't say majority, but a portion of, of the Kurdish population, as Martin van Brunessen argues in his work, they considered the establishment of an Armenian state in Asia Minor and a, a non-Muslim state in Asia Minor as a greater threat uh, for themselves, and they saw greater threats in that than the interest of having their own independent state. And there was this Sunni dynamics with the Kemalist Ankara government, which was fighting, as they put it, their war of independence, partly in the name of religion and the Sunni Islam. Um, so there were these complex dynamics at play. There is also the Muslim question, obviously, in 1922-23 during the conference, what would happen to Mosul was a big question. There were these debates, like figures like Lord Curzon, the British Foreign Secretary and the Chief Delegate in Lausanne would argue that the Kurds were essentially Persians. If you look at their like, uh, ethnic background and uh, linguistic background. So they should be considered part of the newly established Iraq, which was a British mandate. and. Mosul should therefore be kept in Iraq because Mosul and Kirkuk region is a majority Kurdish region. 
the Turks had their own arguments and in 1924 and the run up to calling all citizens of Turkey Turks might have something to do with this issue of who is a Kurd and who is not because they tended to be considered as part of new Turkey, part of the new nation state and the Muslim question, which would be resolved only in 1925 after a League of Commission was sent there and, uh, and a decision was made. Uh, it, it, it has a lot of relevance with this oil dynamics. What the Kurds are thinking and how they are feeling now, and think about history a little bit anachronistically, as if there was one single group of Kurds and there was one aspiration which was their own independence. Yes, Treaty of Lausanne could be the starting point of the Kurdish question. But in reality, it wasn't quite the case. But then again, the situation was very complex. There were Kurdish aspirations for independence, for at least having their own rights, uh, uh, like a cultural, political rights, and their self-determination and sovereignty. But yes, that was suppressed. And I would say many of the existing problems today do, does have some, do have some links with uh, Lausanne, but it would be an overstatement to say that uh, it's, they all emanated from Lausanne because the Kurdish ones at the time was uh, were more complex than uh, what is being suggested. Uh, rephrasing or uh, your the title of your book, using the title of your book, I want to ask you, what is peace in the context of the Treaty of Lausanne? Uh, what do we mean when we sign a peace treaty, Professor Rozafsin? Well, that is a question without a short answer. That is indeed the title of the volume I co-edited with uh, Jonathan Conlin. They all made peace. What is peace? That comes from a poem written by Ernest Hemingway, who was in Lausanne at the time. And it's also the very question that we are asking in the introduction of our edited volume. What did peace mean in 1922? Did it mean settling Pascos or establishing an international order or as Martin Luther King Jr. once inquired, did peace mean merely the absence of tension or the presence of justice? So if we go to 1922 and think about peace in context, what we find here is that the several historical actors that were present at Lausanne formally and informally, or that were awaiting news from Lausanne, they had different answers to these questions. So Lausanne was a parallax. It was indeed a moment where a global moment of international order making, or in the book we, argue, or we say argue that it was an imperial order making process, because what happened with Lausanne was, well, we, we see the transpiration of another uh, moment of inclusion and exclusion. We see the emergence of a new imperial order, meaning, well, in the Arab world, as I've just mentioned, the uh, mandates that had been previously formed, introduced, uh, there was no objection to that. It, it went in force. So the British and French imperial aspirations were furthered through Lausanne. In Turkey uh, and the, uh, the Kemalist elites in Ankara, a considerable portion of which were imperial elites during the Ottoman Empire, they also obtained the majority of their goals. They were able to establish their nation state, homogenize Asia Minor, 
and exclude a large number of minorities through population ex exchange or by calling certain groups not minority at all, though the question of minority is going back way back to the Congress of Vienna 1815, so there is a long discussion there. But what we see here is a post-imperial system for Turkey and the new imperial system for Britain and France were sealed at Lausanne. So for 1922-23, this from what I see, peace meant what the major global imperial powers wanted to establish in the Middle East through a means of compromise. It was a moment of amnesty on the one hand, because before the war, many of the violent crimes, such as the Armenian genocide, the Assyrian genocide, the pogroms against the Greeks, as well as the um, masculine of Muslims, they were all swiped under the, ca the carpet. They weren't even discussed officially. This is one side of the coin. But on the other side of the coin, for more than a century-long history of foreign interventionism, great power interventionism in the Middle East, it was also given, put to an end and given, in a sense, a blind eye with Lausanne. The aim was to put an end to them, obviously, but it, it was a moment of amnesty for, for their foreign interventionism too. So there was these two sides of the coin, and uh, we find here a great power and post-imperial compromise. So it was a winner's peace and there were several silenced voices and frustrations also at stake there, uh, but uh, they had little to do in the making of this very specific peace. And for them, peace meant different things, of course. The silenced voices like the Armenians, Arabs, Kurds, Albanians, Assyriacs, uh, whatever you. Professor, thank you very much for this discussion, and I'm looking forward um, to you, um, to welcoming you um, in the conference on Monday. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. This was another Eliamep podcast with Odin Linardatu. Recording, editing, and sound editing by Petros Karpathiou. Follow us on the Eliamep channels on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and elsewhere.